1: Well, i'm david kern
0: i'm heidi white
1: and i'm tim mcintosh and you are listening to close reads podcast for the incurable reader now brought to you by goldberry studios say that for the first time
0: that's so exciting we are Wait, here
1: david what yeah um what yeah um <laughs> we've been you,
2: taken over
1: yeah we sold to our russian, a russian To a russian conglomerate
0: <laughs> that <laughs> is act- a joke Anybody listening, Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not true.
1: <laughs> yeah. So if you um, if you are not on the Facebook group or didn't get our email list, you might have missed uh, or how would I just say, I don't know what I just said. If you're not in the Facebook group or don't receive the email because you're not on the email list is what I meant to say, then you might have missed the news that... Close Reads is going to be part of a new company that uh, I'm starting. My wife and I are starting. We started Goldberry Books, as you probably know. And within that company, there is going to be Goldberry Studios. So we're going to be providing podcast services and publishing services alongside selling books. And we're creating a little suite of podcasts. My dad and Matt Bianco and the Cersei team were uh, super kind and generous to let us um, essentially purchase, (laughs) transfer ownership of, Close Reads and The Daily Poem over to Goldberry Studios. So it's all love with Cersei. There's no kind of like conflict or anything. Just some opportunities for Bethany and I to do some things we've been dreaming of doing for a long time. Um, If you want to learn more about that, you can uh, head over to uh, closereads.substack.com or check out the Facebook page where we have the announcement there. So I'll leave that, you know, to that announcement in terms of the explanation. But, um, you know, from now on, you'll be hearing the name Goldberry Studios attached to... Close Reads and The Daily Poem and some other things that we have coming, including a podcast for younger readers that we're going to be launching uh, here very, very soon. So as soon as we figure out a name for it, we just can't figure that part out. Names are hard. (laughs) Um, We thought about calling it the Tim McIntosh pod and then just... Tim's never actually on it. It's just called the Tim McIntosh pod yeah. because I felt like that lent some mystery. And then yeah. like after like six months he could show up, but he comes on for like 30 seconds, tells a joke or gives a pun and then disappears again.
2: Ooh. Um, kind of like a, where is Waldo right. sort of scenario. Right. Exactly. I like it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Like an, like an absent figurehead.
2: Yeah. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> kind
0: of like swoops in with some inspiring Wisdom. message. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, yes. Although in
1: this case, a pun, right. um, although pun and puns and could, could, could also be wise. You could have a wise pun, I suppose. Well, we are here to discuss Death Comes for the Archbishop. We're going to talk about books two and three. Uh, Tim, did you have something you want to say?
2: Well, I just wanted to mention while we were on the subject of kind of like the um, new your production wisdom, team, wisdom. I wanted to just like throw out a pun. No, I wanted <laughs> to say that uh, the plays, the thing is going to kind of remain underneath the Circe umbrella. It'll be produced by David and Bethany's company, um, but I just wanted to mention that and the we'll have the same kind of group of contributors. Mm-hmm. Heidi, we're going to have Andrew, uh, David's dad, on for Hamlet. Sarah Jane is planning on being part of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Matt, Bianco, Matt Bianco for yeah. King of The Shrew and a couple of surprise additions for other, for other plays.
1: Yep, that'll be on the Circe Podcast Network. Yeah. Yeah, And we're partnering, Goldberry Studios is still partnering with Cersei and the Cersei Podcast Network to help make their shows. So I'll still be working with Cersei, um, just kind of more on a project-based instead of, you know, all-day, every-day type of scenario, um, which will give us a chance to grow the store and do some things that, like I said, we've been wanting to do. And then hopefully, um, you know, still allow Cersei to do great stuff like um, have Tim host the Play's the Thing along with a, you know, great... uh uh, along with his comrades, I, I believe
2: is the is the phrase. That his comrade phrase in it. arms, who will be discussing Shakespeare.
0: Still, no
2: Russian no takeover, Russian interference. We repeat, listeners, no <laughs> Russian collusion.
1: To be fair, people who are you know maybe engaged with some Russian collusion would also reinforce that excessively that they are not <laughs> involved <laughs> really, with the David? Russians. Oh, sorry, was sorry. I'm not, I'm not helping your cover. Okay. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. So Willa Cather's death comes for the archbishop. Cather like gather. I still have to remind myself of that all the time. Stumble over that one. So again, we're here to discuss books two and three. I believe book two was called missionary journeys. And I believe book three is called the mass at Ancoma. i Um, that's off my, from memory. So I probably got that wrong. Um, But I have a question for you guys as we kind of dive into this. I'm sure you'll each have passages you want to read and um, plenty of uh, things that you want to talk about. But last week we talked about the sort of episodic nature of this book. And um, I I want to ask a question about that because I, I got to thinking, why these particular episodes? So, when you have a book that's episodic, the author is making choices to not, to, to leave things out, right? They're leaving, they're making choices about when to end an episode and why to include an episode. Um, I was struck in particular by like when the parts ended, like when part two and part three, when do they, why do they end the way that they do? So, the question that I would like to start this episode with, um, to see if you guys can help me out here, is why does Willa Cather, Choose the particular episodes that she chooses? In other words, is there a thread that is connecting these Mm. series of episodes that we're getting? I think that when we think about episodic stories, one of the things that can leave us um, a little bit disoriented is, as we said last week, there's a sort of plotlessness to it, right? But when done well, there can still be threads that almost operate in the same psychological way that a plot does, Mm. where it's pointing us towards sort of a unifying theme or some kind of unifying principle or something that helps bring it, bring it together. Now we're only 114 pages or so three parts into this book, but is there anything that you're seeing so far that points towards unifying principles or common threads or something like that? Um, I was kind of rambling there for a second because Heidi was needed to move rooms. So now that she's finally sat down in the other room, I'm going to turn to her first and make her <laughs> nice. answer. Thank you. Now that she's, it's she just to drive she a run somebody to to
0: Russian collusion. I know she had it's to called. run to the
1: other room, so she's probably out of breath now. So I think I feel like the, dr- the it'd just be the most fun to make her answer now.
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So I record from home, and I have all my home is like fraught with all of these problems. So. <laughs> I had to turn off my heater because I was making too much noise and then the water filter turned on and it was like gurgling in the background to like filter it. So anyway.
1: You are living in a Siberian camp right now. So. I,
0: right. So, so it's just an endless amount of Collision. relentless. We know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. So I like this question a lot. Then the episodic nature, I think because I've, Read this book before and love it so much. I'm I am finding more and more threads of connection between the episodes, things that I didn't catch the first time. Um, but the unifying principle is less plot. I think it's um, and more uh, the idea of. Uh, of memory you mentioned last week David about uh that this has some elements of a memory novel and it's not necessarily a straightforward memory novel um but it i think that that, that idea of of these that it's telling a story less in a linear fashion and more in an episodic fashion, but it's telling the story of this man's ministry um, and the great work of his life. And in doing that, there were, you're, he's the narrator. Then is she? Will Cather, the narrator that the author is relying more on these big moments uh, that that have contributed to the great work of Latour's of Bishop Latour's life. Um, And, and, and in that way, um, like these kind of explosions of memory, these, these major moments that contribute to, uh, you know the the title, right? Death comes for the Archbishop. So, are these things that he's remembering as he's dying becomes the question of the novel? Then, um, when you look back on a life, what are the things you remember? You don't think about your life as this unfolding story. You think about episodes in your life. Mm. Um, none of us are on our deathbed, so we don't know that for sure. But um, I think that it 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 stands to reason that you're going to call to mind things like these episodes of your life that have led you to 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 finish or to be in the midst of the great work. Um, and I think that that's contributes to the episodic nature. Mm.
2: This, this book is, we've talked about it being a memory book. It's so this, the structure of the prose is so clear to me mm. that I am reluctant to put it in the category of a memory novel um but on the other hand i think what heidi just said is right there's something about like it's easy for me to imagine uh bishop latour archbishop latour looking back on his life and remembering certain glimmering shimmering moments remember when we were traveling across the country and we met the woman you know Um, but there's so I, i kind of feel a little bit conflicted about uh, it being a memory novel, and I don't hear either one of you guys like arguing that that's really what's going on. Um, I'm just saying it's kind of in that, kind of that, kind of a strange space for me because in some ways, plot-wise, it does seem like a memory novel, but the structure and orderly- orderliness of the prose does not strike me as a memory novel. Mm-hmm. So um, to your question, David, as I've been reading through this book again, the thing that I keep coming back to is, um, it seems to me like these episodes have, a, if they have a common theme, it might be regaining or establishing order. Mm. Okay. And That's interesting. What I mean by that is, I've been thinking a lot about um, maybe the difference between what I think of as a typical protestant mission or maybe even an lds what i think was a typical lds mission um and what i think of as the mission of this book and i think that protestants evangelicals and maybe people from the lds church might think of the chief purpose of a mission is to speak and spread the word Hmm. it seems like for latour That's one part of the mission, but it's a minor part of the mission. His mission is about the establishment or reestablishment of order and the unification of disparate parts of the church underneath the capital C Catholic universal church.
1: So one of the things we keep getting is this, these digressions, right? So for example, at the end of book three, we get this digression, which is the story that father jesus tells him about the the 17th century priest or 18th century priest who is cruel but he builds these gardens right and then he ends up getting thrown over the cliff and it's pretty long it's for this book it's a fairly long chapter it's 20 pages maybe or something like that but it's definitely a digression it doesn't carry forward latour's life at all and but for some reason it stood out in his memory and that's why i think it feels like a memory novel because it feels like he's drawing upon things that don't always make sense that why why does this appear so are the digressions then supposed to such as the one i just mentioned supposed to suggest sort of um disorder or lawlessness or um the absence of the things that that latour is trying to create and then subsequently trying to preserve
2: i i'm going to um Uh, reluctantly argue yes. And I say reluctantly because I'm still kind of my memory of, I'm still thinking of it, but also because my memory of my first reading of this book is so hazy. I'm a little bit reluctant to draw really firm conclusions based on an old reading from many years ago. Um, But it, it does kind of seem that way to me. It seems to me like we are I'm starting to see a thread that this kind of like back and forth or this sort of dichotomy between order and disorder seems to be really bright. And I did some extracurricular reading this week. So I, I, I want to just throw a couple of things in there. I, I've got a two volume set by Sidney Alstrom, A H L S T R O M the religious history of the American people. And I kind of wanted to find out what's going on in The southwest of the United States during this time. And okay, it is so interesting. It's (laughs) it's really interesting. And I think it's kind of shaping my reading. So I don't know if that's fair or not, but I just want to read one paragraph. So the book kind of begins very end of the 1840s in Rome. And then in the in North America, it begins in 1851.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So this is from Alstrom's book. Amid the anti-clericalism and political disorder of the early decades of Mexican rule, the state of the church deteriorated still further. With the province of New Mexico, including Heidi, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and most of Arizona, um, became part of the United States in 1848. It had a population of about 60,000, perhaps half of which were Spanish or Mestizo. 20 or more priests were serving the area but the missions were still were in near total disorganization. Two years later, the Vi- oh gosh, I'm embarrassed. I'm going to really butcher this word. The vicariate, v-i-c-a-r-i-a-t-e of New Mexico, was erected to order the church's affairs in the region. Now listen to this sentence, you guys. Chosen to direct the task was a French-born priest, then serving in Kentucky, Jean Baptiste Lamy. When he resigned as archbishop in 1875, he reported 56 priests and 203 places of worship in his vast province. So we went from 20 priests to 56 priests just during his time. And I was like, wow, Lemie, that really overlaps really neatly with our book. And so I did a little bit more research and Lemie is the model for our main character. Yeah. You knew this, Heidi.:
0: Yeah, I did. Um, and i'm I'm on the fence about whether or not it's helpful in reading the book. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. Right. But what I would I would not like a conversation about this book. I don't think it's helpful or useful for a conversation about the book to be a comparison of uh, Willa Cather's fictionalized version of of Luffy's life compared to his actual historical life. Yeah, she's she's doing something very different. She's not. This isn't historical fiction. And I didn't mention anything about it last week. Um, for that purpose, I think that it's really easy then to make it like a comparison side by side: this guy's life and this guy's life. And I think she's doing something. A whole different than that, but I think that that's really interesting, yeah. and um, I I think it's a brilliant idea for creating a novel like this. This is just a unique novel all around, and I, I think that that definitely adds a depth of interest to it.
1: Yeah, it was, you mentioned the idea of it's not historical fiction, and yet you have characters like Kit Carson show up, right? right? Yeah, who. Is one the of the Pope leg- will
2: show up later.
1: Yeah, right. Yep. I mean, Kit Carson is one of the legends of Western lore, right? And she makes, this very, makes him into this very human sort of doubting uh, character, even just this brief time that we see him. And uh, so it does have aspects of historical fiction. I mean, and then, of course, the places themselves are real. Like, you can go on Wikipedia and you can see pictures, recent pictures of the of uh, a coma which is Mm -hmm. you know i mean like it's so so we can spend a lot of time trying to do that historical deep dive if we want um i think seeing the landscape someone posted some beautiful photos photos on uh on the facebook page that really bring it bring it to life especially because i think a lot of americans probably haven't been to new mexico it's probably one of those places that's tim you've been there yeah um and heidi you've been there right
0: yeah, I drive by Alamo every time I go visit my parents. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's really? It's really? Like, Stunning. Yeah. It's yeah.
1: But so, like, I've never been there. Um, I lived in Idaho, but I never went to New Mexico. And there's like, it it still has a sort of wildness to it in my imagination, yes. a sense of like not an not a disorder or a non-civilization or something, but that there's a, there are some vestiges of of um the frontier. It's the, the frontier. frontier still. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so to see those images helps bring alive a landscape that I've only ever seen in Western movies or in documentaries. Right. And uh, so I think paying attention to those things can be really helpful in terms of opening up our imaginations to it. But I also think that these historical characters, they've got to be telling us something about what her purpose was. Like why did she bring in a real person? Like which Pope, uh, which Pope was it? Um, it Pope Gregory the 16th. Is that right? I think so. So why does she bring in a character, which we haven't gotten to yet, but why does she bring him? And why does she bring a character like Kit Carson into it? Um, like, what do you think she's after if not trying to say this is historical fiction?
0: I think she's exploring the authentic American experience, mm. right? When we read Kit Carson on stage, so to speak, with Bishop Latour, it's, it, it adds, like, it orients us, Right we're like oh i know who that guy is like it, it it has this sense of an of awakening interest because even if this wild landscape and this clash of cultures and this kind of uh even if that's unfamiliar to your american experience you've heard of kit carson and you've you know so it it's inclusive to the reader i think um, and I think she is after exploring what does it mean to be an American? What is what is the authentic American experience? What's this, uh, this primal identity as an American, this thing that we're still carrying with us, even if we have no idea what it's like to live in the Southwest, right? Mm. But what is it that unifies us? And names like Kit Carson um, and the Pope um, – are, you know, those are, those are two, um, you know, archetypal identifiers for two different types of cultures. Mm -hmm. And she is exploring what happens when, when cultures meet and clash and have conflict and care about each other and love each other and see each other. There's just this and, and again, that speaks also to the episodic nature of the novel, um, that it's almost like one story isn't enough. You need episodes. You need you know, these complete. Um, and each of the episodes has this sense of completion to it. Like there's nothing else to add. Once you hear that story about the bishop, or excuse me, the priest being thrown off the wall, that's such a brilliant, brilliant story. Um, and like... It has this quality of myth or fairy tale to it mm-hmm. that just expresses this um, this cultural, universal truth. And then you got to kind of move on and tell another story because that's the whole story,
1: yeah um, it certainly pushes yeah. the book towards being about the place more it's, than anything else because we're getting tales of the place itself. and we but we're not getting his reaction to that. So we you said that there's nothing else to tell in a lot of these episodes. And that's a really interesting idea because I find myself in almost at the end of almost every chapter, basically being like, "That's it, you stopped there." That's such an interesting <laughs> choice. Yeah, like you know, and then like the one that you mentioned there certainly is a complete tale, right? It's a complete short story, um, and we we don't get, but we don't, we also don't get his response to the right father who's telling him the story. But we get a lot of scenes where, you know it's just this he he'll, he's obviously with a village for two weeks or something and we get some small portion of it and then it just sort of stops and then the chapter ends in the next day it's like well, the four months later he was in the next place so I, I do find that to be a little bit disorienting in a way am yes. I is do you feel do you feel that way too
0: I do I agree with that completely I even felt um this is why I think this is this novel defies um, being like pinned down to a certain genre like you yeah. Tim what you said it's not really a memory novel it's third person it couldn't be yeah, a memory third novel, right. but it has yes but it has elements of this idea of episodic memory and contributing to the great work of one man and then but it it's also has like that story about the the priest being thrown off um is I mean that almost does have like a very um like folktale myth fairy tale kind of Feel to it. And then you have on the other side, this crazy story about this abused woman who's rescued, right? Runs away when the priests come and, and, and that almost has like a journalistic quality to it. Mm. There's so much left unsaid. It's just the bare facts of this, like very, very um, frightening and traumatic experience of this woman. And it even tells you what happens, you know, later she goes and she lives in this convent and she becomes, tells you her whole life story and then moves on. Um, So there's all different kinds of voices um, and narrators and different types of stories that are included, which I think makes it a very comprehensive kind of Volume of this particular cultural moment that's explored and from various different kinds of tales.
2: Hmm. There's a, um, I think a, an analogy between this book, okay. And I, of course, I'm going to make a Russian literature allusion, it both fits like the branding for this particular show and my own particular brand. Um, you really Warren, need to get the
1: new George Saunders book, really? Why is that? Oh, because it's a,
2: Wait, it involves Russians, right?
1: Yeah, he, he writes about, I think, four or five, five Russian short stories that he's been teaching for 30 years and at the university level and how
2: it teaches him about writing and telling stories. Oh, nice. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. War and Peace is similar to Death Comes to the Archbishop in this way. Real historical characters, very prominent historical characters, show up within this fictional work. Like Napoleon is one of the stars of War and Peace and he's surrounded by generals who are actual generals who fought in the battle between the French and the Russians. And yet the majority of the plot is driven by fictional, three fictional families. So there was so much question when War and Peace came out about like, hey, Leo, what are we supposed to do with this book? Did you know Napoleon? Yeah, did you know Napoleon? Does he really like that? (laughs) (laughs) Um. And so Tolstoy did a, like a little, not a summary, but he gave a kind of a defense of the genre or an explanation for the genre mm. that is war and peace. And he acknowledged what everybody was saying is true. Yeah. I've got both fictional characters, fictional families surrounded by real generals and Napoleon himself, the czar of Russia. So what is the genre of war and peace? He said, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, it is, Uh, an apparatus that I invented to suit the purposes of the author. Hmm. I made a genre (laughs) that kind of blends a couple of other genres. And I did it because I had a goal in mind for war and peace. And so to fit that goal, I made a, a genre. I kind of wonder if that's what we've got here with Death Comes to the Archbishop, Heidi, if mm-hmm. she's just made a genre. And I'm not trying to make it sound like like she's just like doing something crazy. Oh my gosh. Because yeah, no in a lot of ways, it's, very straight, it's a very straightforward fictional novel, mm-hmm. but she's just doing something different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's the way she, like, the narrators are third person, as you guys said, and, and they're omniscient. So there's a sort of <laughs> like an all knowingness to it, which makes it so it can't be a memory novel, but then the way she puts the scenes together have the, the um, effect, a similar effect of what a memory novel might have. Mm-hmm. So that that's, for, I, it's. For, I wasn't necessarily trying to say like, this is the genre that the book is so much as right. this book has a number of, has the same effect as a number of different genres. So on the one hand, it has the effects of great historical fiction. It has the fe- effect of great nature writing. It has the effect of what a memory novel can have on us in terms of how it sort of cur- shapes our experience. Uh, and so not a lot of books can tread on so many different paths without losing track of what they're doing. Yeah, You know, yeah. there's a sort of deftness to... A skill, you know, it's a skill, the the way she's able to weave different, um, or if not different genres, the the way different genres work on a reader into one book. Um, And see, on the one hand, you've got like the way legend and historical fiction can play with you, play play on your psyche as a reader. And then you've got the sort of the way a memory novel can confuse you, can leave you feeling a little... Pulled pulled around, right? Um, mm. I don't know what the phrase is exactly. Um, and then you've got the nature writing where the prose is so beautiful at times. It's mm. so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it feels the undulations of it just kind of whisk you along, like like really really good nature writing, or really good travel writing, or really good memoir does. And she puts all that together.
2: Yeah. And when and, Kit Carson shows up. You don't miss a beat. To your point, you don't miss a beat. It it, it doesn't seem strange. It doesn't seem forced. It's so natural.
1: And in fact, I found myself... She doesn't tell right away who he is. And I found myself asking... Were you guessing? Yeah. Wait, is that is she talking about about Kit Carson? And then eventually you kind of come to it. And she doesn't come right out and say nice to meet you. I'm Kit Carson, you know? Mm. <laughs> and the way she drops it is so, it I'm like a I'm frontier legend,
2: Kit Carson. <laughs> yeah. And then he offered me a sturdy handshake. Co-starring <laughs> Kit Carson.
1: <laughs> this episode featuring. Um, so she's, there's a, there's just a great skill. Um, that, that Willa Cather has. I mean, it's not like, I'm not saying anything that's, that's uh, other people out there are like, man, nope, will gather just, hot garbage. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's a fool. I'm not saying anything that like uh, people don't agree with, right? Like she, she is one of the American, mm-hmm. the central figures of 20th century American literature and literature West of the Mississippi. So I don't want to act like what I'm saying is some kind of genius thing. I'm just saying what other people have said in my own poor way. Mm-hmm. Um, go go yeah, go ahead.
2: I want to make one more historical just like a little bit of a historical overview of what's going on, and then I promise I'll try to leave it alone. I don't know that I'll actually be able to. I just, I'm we a all have our own a interests, nerd. yeah. I'm just a little bit of a nerd about like finding kind of like I think when history augments your reading of a novel, I just enjoy it so much more when it overwhelms your reading of the novel, and you do something like Heidi was warning us against, like how much of this is like a real, um, how much of of the story of Father Latour is taken from the actual pages of history and it's actually like Priest Lemay, Lemay. um, That's boring. I think that suffocates a novel and it doesn't let the novel sing with its own voice. But I think if a book like this can sometimes be served by a little bit of historical context. And I think the historical context of what's going on in the Catholic church at this moment in the middle of the 19th century is really interesting because America is a major problem in the Catholic church. I mean, I think the bigger problem is a problem that I think the Catholic church is wrestling with right now, which is the forces of tradition and the forces of progressivism. And these two things are sort of like being, the church is trying to keep its arms around these two forces. So well, I'm going to read another What do you do
1: when um, tradition is when you're trying to bring tradition to a culture that is fundamentally resistant to the exactly, traditions that you're trying to bring to them? Exactly. It has right. its own traditions. Right. I mean, Acoma, the native people have been living there for two thousand years.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Go, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean it's a, it's a it's, a, it's an, totally it's it's the point I think that like I, I'm starting to wonder if maybe this is what. Willa Cather is trying to articulate. What if, um, what if Father Latour is actually kind of a voice for tradition, like the civilizing and organizing influence of tradition, the health of tradition? I'm just positing that as a possibility. So let me just read a couple of paragraphs from this uh, Sidney Alstrom's Religious History of the American People. So, this is on page 301 of Volume 2. The heading is An American Problem. An institutional crisis usually involves conflict between radically opposed proposals for present and future action. The Roman Catholic Americanism crisis was no exception. The crisis, as we shall see, was a complex of at least a dozen interconnected questions, but it is punctuated by the clash of two opposing groups or factions. Then Alstrom goes out and kind of describes, like, this is the American faction, and it's led by this group of people. This is the kind of institutional slash traditional faction, and it's led by these groups of people. Then, a little bit later, allied with these groups was a large body of conservatives clearly a majority, among the Irish clergy who had so long defined themselves by their opposition to the Anglo-Saxon culture that anything but almost the utilitarian kinds of participation in American life seemed to imply a betrayal of their heritage. So a lot of the Irish clergy, Irish um, Catholic clergy at this time are kind of, they're more siding with the traditionalist forces. And I just find it interesting that in the prologue of the book, it's an Irish priest who is advocating for Father Latour, which lends a little bit of credence to my suggestion that what if Father Latour is like, what if his goal is its organization and it's the instantiation of the Catholic tradition on this Kind of American wilderness that is like really foreign, both in temperament and in geography, to the kind of organizing impulse of the Catholic Church.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. We are talking about an institutional church. Uh, with headquarters in Rome, and then a sacramental life to spread throughout the world. Um, to your point, it's not it's not the same as what the Protestants would think of as evangelism or missionary work. It's not just, Hey, do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal right. Lord and Savior? Right. Um, this is the the building of churches, the marriages, marriages and baptisms, and um, bringing together within a common language. And it's also uh, we um, another layer of complexity to exactly what you're saying is that the this is an area that has already been um, evangelized in the in. By the Catholic Church, by the Spanish, during the time of the conquistadors. And so you have this mixture of Spanish Catholicism uh, that's very old. And as we keep seeing over and over again in this novel, there it's really hard to travel at this time. Mm. It takes a really long time to get anywhere, to get any news anywhere, to arrive anywhere. It takes him six months to go to a conference and get back, Right. which we saw at, at, uh, in this reading. And so it's not, there's nobody texting back and forth trying to figure out what to do about the church up in Akimo, right? That. Hey and, bro, um, where
2: are you at?
0: Yes, it's, it is, It uh, is. this is a, a very difficult uh, and challenging landscape. It's a very difficult and challenging work. Um, and he's cut off from the old worlds, um, with the exception of being able to take and receive messages a few times a year. And so there's, it is, it's very complex and, and you, we do have a very established Catholic culture here, but it's mixed in with the Indian culture, the native cultures, and it is fraught with corruption as we keep seeing with Padre Gallegos and, um, the priest whose name, I can't remember from the story that we read, what, who was thrown off the side of the cliff. What's that guy's name? Anyway, I can't remember either,
2: Heidi. Yeah, that guy.
0: So, um, it's not, it's not easy what he's doing. Plus the landscape and the climate is really harsh. Um, and I, I find, you know, it's funny because just on a personal level, I find this book like incredibly soothing to read. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's like very peaceful, but it doesn't describe anything peaceful at all. Like and and that's why I find it just really interesting because it is a very complex set of dynamics, politics, religion, um personal internal issues of the the individual characters. Um and yet there's something incredibly soothing about it. So I was thinking about that this week and this morning I was thinking I think it's because these, it, I think it's partly because Bishop Latour and Father Vaillant are like, they're good men. So I'm not like worried about them going off the rails. And then secondly, it's because they're so single-minded. Like there's, like they are, they are there to build the kingdom. They are there to build the church. And there's, even though their life is hard and complex and they're, they're, you know, stuck in the middle of this very nuanced and complex dynamics, yet they know exactly who they are and exactly what they're doing. And they're just doing it. And I find that very soothing.
1: One of the things that I think is interesting about what Tim was saying and that you're then following up on is that when you look at the history that Tim's pointing to, it can help us identify what the problem of the book is like, Mm. or the central theme, because it can help us say, this is, this is the world that she's talking about. And the more we know about that world, you know, we can look at that history without turning it into an interpretive exercise where it becomes the guideline by which we try to, you know, create one-to-one correlations for the things that she's doing in the book. We can avoid doing that and still say, well, this history can help us look, help us identify what this book is actually about, given that it's sort of plotless, right? It can help us say the problem at the core of this novel is you know tied to the things that you're talking about Tim, which then brings us uh, between the, the two of the things that the two of you were saying brought me to this question of these priests who are less virtuous less good mm. than Latour and Valle well, how do you say that Heidi Vaillant, Vaillant, yeah, Vaillant, Vaillant, Latour. Um, so, so there's all these examples of priests who Latour kind of has to, you know, humble. <laughs> um, and then there's some that just get thrown off cliffs. Um, <laughs> and uh, how how do you respond to those to those guys? We've got the one um, uh, who. Uh, he's considered favorably, but he collects parrots, right? It was, is that Father right. um, Jesus? Yes. Um, and he, he's generally, he, Father Latour kind of views him as a little simple-minded, it seems like. Maybe a little bit, um, uh,
0: he's not caught up yeah, in the
1: quite, complexity.
0: Right. He's just, yeah.
1: But, 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 weird, but interest, interestingly, not weirdly, he's blind. And, or, or going blind. And then you have these other priests who are, you know, greedy or um, gluttonous. Um, was it Gallegos who is a little bit too consumed by fine food and hunting?
0: Mm. Uh, um, and so is Baltazar, right? As well, yeah. And
1: then we're going to meet more, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so it seems like it seems like he is not just going from place to place where the people themselves are living in, as the book puts it, concubinage, or where the children aren't baptized. But he goes to those places and finds priests who have kind of abdicated their responsibilities, um, who are not doing what they've been sent there to do, um, or who have been consumed by, you know, opportunity. (laughs) Um, They've kind of given given themselves up to temptation of of some form or another. Um, and so he has to restore order. By getting rid of the people that had been sent there, not just by going there and he, he's not he doesn't have to solve the problem of the natives, in other words, he seems like it seems like he's the larger problem that he has to solve has to do with people who were sent there to bring ostensibly to bring the civilization that Tim that you're talking about, but that abdicated that responsibility that didn't that aren't doing what they were sent there to do uh, and so that that almost it seems to add a level of comp. Complexity to what his job is. Were you going to say something, Tim?
2: Well, I, what interests me is when Father Latour approaches these men, um, there's a casual, in, in these other priests, there's sort of a casual regard for the uh, repairing, I'll say repairing the sacraments. You know, like Father Latour is mm-hmm. there to um, perform marriages and the yeah, baptized children. And to baptize children. And the priest who has been in charge up until that moment is like, hey, we'll get to it when we can. And I've, yeah. And for Father Latour, this this seems like something that, no, this cannot wait. This is the exact problem with you, mister, is that you don't understand that this is not something that we can continue to put off. And there's a kind of urgency. You don't value this. You don't value it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when he comes in, um, (laughs) And he performs these baptisms and marriages. There's an urgency to his action that is not understood by the existing priest. And therein lies the whole problem for Father Latour. Like the fact that you have been lax in these duties shows that you actually don't really care about these duties. What actually shows that like you are not supposed to be doing, you should not be doing this job. You need to be relieved of your duties.
1: It's so interesting because she starts the book. I mean, obviously there's the prologue, but once she gets going with Latour, we talked about this last week, it's about solitude. And, and she so, focuses so much and des- describes so vividly the wildness of the landscape. There's almost something Corm- Cormac McCarthy-ish about it, yeah. right? Yes. Um, but then as we go, that wildness and that solitude is heightened by the failures of the other clergy around him rather than the other clergy around him being solutions for that wildness and that solitude. Like he doesn't go there and find kindred spirits very often. Right, mm-hmm. He finds people who are living in ways that are antithetical to what he is trying to create and preserve. Go ahead, Heidi.
0: Right. Well, and he's a bishop and they mm. are there. So there's, there's such a very strong sense of hierarchy and authority within the Catholic church. Right. That's and a great point. And he he really owns that. He he knows his own authority. He is willing to wield it, but he also has a humility to him. Again, what's what's really interesting here and very different from the contemporary novel um, is that she's not putting the church under any kind of like whistleblowing scrutiny mm. or trying to blow it up as a f- corrupt institution. And it's that the church is just as much a setting, a neutral setting in the novel as the mm. landscape itself. Um, so she's not, uh, she's pointing out and, you know my favorite person to quote this year, Solzhenitsyn, Exactly what Solzhenitsyn <laughs> says: the dividing line of good and evil goes through every human heart. The church is not being scrutinized necessarily, but these, to your point, David, this priest is—is he—is he a good man, right? Um, and and bishop and the bishop comes in and makes an institutional decision on behalf of the church, um, and and he—it's very clear he's not ambitious for power. He actually just really wants to help purify the church um, for the sake of the people in the land. But what I also love, love, love about him, um, he is a bit idealized in the novel. There's nobody I think as good as him, but that's okay with me. Again, I find it very soothing and just like good for my soul to read about a good man and a kind of a wider zeitgeist that just seems to want to attack the hero, right? Um, And so I really like this. Uh, but another thing that I, I just love about him is that he is not there to impose the church on the native cultures who are resistant to it. You know, he and Vaillant, they both they go in and they offer baptism and they offer marriages. And if people don't want it, they move on. They try to convince them, but they're not there to like impose European cultural values on the native peoples. They accept the they're culture unlike and are respectful to the culture. Yeah. And then and and then but they're like, but also we are the church and we have something to offer spiritually. Um and that's goes and again that's that's in direct opposition to kind of the, the Zeitgeist cultural narrative, which is that, you know, the white European man comes in and tries to impose European culture and then does violence to native cultures. That's not what's going on in this novel. At least from Latour.
1: Do you think he is responding to um, Or trying to, um, I don't know.
0: Heal wounds. Uh,
1: heal wounds or apologize for people that did do that?
0: I think if the novel was written today, that would be a more of a major theme in it. I'm not sure that when Willa Cather was writing, there was... Um, any kind of like intense public outrage about colonialism the way there is today. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that it's there within the novel and it's addressed within the novel, but it's not the major problem of the novel to your point about, are we, if we're trying to find the problem in the novel, Um, the problem of the novel is not native cultures. The problem isn't European culture. The problem really isn't, but, but she's exploring the culture, um, but not indicting it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tim, were you going to say something? I was going to ask Heidi. Heidi s- said that she found the book really soothing and I do too. But I was going to ask, did you um did you get scared during the chapter about the um the murderer when the priest and Father Viant? No, say this, say his name again. I'm the one now who's struggling with the last names. That's right. S- yep. Viant. Mm -hmm. Um, It goes in the throat. Are you proud
0: of me, Brandon LeBlanc? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, It's a soothing read. It's it's kind of um, yeah. It's a soothing read, but that episode where they ride up to the house and the abused woman is inside. Were you at all nervous? And actually, just to kind of take us back there for a second, I just want to read the opening, the description of the man uh, who answers the door, who we'll find out a little bit later is a murderer. So this is on page 66. It's both beautiful writing and it's also, it's harrowing. As they rode up to the door, a man came out, bareheaded, and they saw to their surprise that he was not a Mexican, but an American of a very unprepossessing type. He spoke to them in some drawling dialect they could scarcely understand and asked if they wanted to stay the night. During the few words they exchanged with him, Father Latour felt a growing reluctance to remain even for a few hours under the roof of this ugly, evil-looking fellow. He was tall, gaunt, and ill-formed, with a snake-like neck, terminating in a small, bony head. Under his close-clothed Crypt, under his close-clipped hair, this repellent head showed a number of thick ridges, as if the skull joinings were overgrown by layers of superfluous bone. With its small, rudimentary ears, this head had a positively malignant look. The man seemed not only half-human, but he was the only householder on the lonely road to Mora. Just As a side note, he has no neighbors. He's a little bit like the Cyclops in Odysseus. Oh, in that's a
0: great connection. Right? I love that.
2: Um, how did that scene make you nervous?
0: Yeah. So I remember the first time when I read this novel, I thought that this was like the introduction to the problem of the book. I like thought he was going to be the bad guy.
2: Yeah, right.
0: You know, and yes, you know, it comes oh, to the archbishop the, and this yeah, is like a, the, the story's benda. just getting going, right? Like um, because I still didn't understand the episodic nature of the narrative. So and then it just like resolved within a couple of pages and I was like, What just happened? That mm. was That's it. That's it. Yeah. So um, like they got away. There wasn't even like a shootout at the corral. Like so um, <laughs> I, I was surprised. To be fair, there was that, barely
1: a shootout at the actual corral. So, at the
0: actual corral, fair enough. Yes. So, um, but so, yeah, I mean, he's you that whole thing about like him killing his own children and that, I mean, that's just repulsive. Um, again, she's she, we do have this idealized main character, right? So, she's got to create some a lot of conflict in order to explore these things that she is exploring the fragments between the cultures, the fragmentation, excuse me, between the cultures and this kind of conflict. And, and um, so she does that in the episodic form uh, rather than centered in the main character. And this particular episode to your point is like so menacing and she doesn't her incredible power of description. Like I can see this guy in my head. Like I, I have like a very vivid very, very vivid mental images of every one of these episodes in this in this book. And I'm not like a visual th- thinker. Um, I'm like a very words auditory kind of person. So it does take a lot to give me a very vivid image. And I think that's why I, one of the reasons why I, I really love Cather is because she's so skilled at that.
1: One of the things I noticed about that scene was, um, so, so she warns them. I'm trying to find the line right now, but um, Latour he he, he references he, he's that he thinks one of the saints, I believe, is watching over them.
0: Hmm. Saint Joseph. Yeah,
1: and there's this. Um, I can't find the line. He's an interesting character in comparison to someone like Kit Carson. If you look at this figure of the American West. You think of like, you know, a tracker or some kind of a soldier or a cowboy or someone who has this ability to read the landscape and make decisions based on that and rescue people and defeat the bad guy. And they have this great skill set that is particular to the place, right? To to the kind of person who would thrive in that place. Latour is not like that he he his his the his warning signals are perk up because you know because he's prayerful Hmm. because he has a sensitivity for what god the holy spirit the saints whatever version of that you want to kind of point towards in the way you're talking about it he believes that they're watching out for him he has a spiritual sensitivity in a way that Kit Carson has a sort of sensitivity to sagebrush, mountain paths, Hmm. the signs of enemies and things like that around him. And because of that, he makes decisions that someone like Kit Carson might make in a moment when he feels like there might be an imminent threat. Tim, you just unmuted yourself, which is the universal symbol signal for I want to speak now. It's like
0: zoom no, hand no, raising. No, right? no.
2: <laughs> what was going on behind the scenes was um, I'm sitting in my dad's office and someone printed something on the printer. Oh, okay. And okay. so I muted it because the Got printer it. was like, <laughs> 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 you know, it's like so loud. Wait, could you do that again? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, wait, someone's printing something again.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. So you don't. You no, don't. You don't no,
2: I'm sorry. Say. False okay. alarm, David. False alarm.
1: Well, what about you, Heidi? Now that we've... Now no, that I actually
0: love that. I think that's so good. This and And I think it sheds a lot of light on... Why choosing a religious figure for the central character of this novel? Why? Right? Because you could you could put him as a secondary character and it's Kit Carson or a cowboy or you know a Mexican caballero, what that um that's navigating this landscape, right? But that's the traditional American hero. And by giving by kind of bestowing the heroic central character upon a priest who's a newcomer to the land. I know he lived in Ohio before he came here. Um, and so he had, you know, he kind of dipped his toes in and now he's on the frontier. Um, by by doing that, there is this sense of um, displacement from the traditional American hero who is a hero of the land, a hero, a physical hero, a, a hero of great, um, you know, kind of Still that solitary piece, right? Because the traditional American hero is still Lone Wolf, him against the world. But you have here a a spiritual hero, which is, to your point, very different from the American kind of cowboy or explorer that you might have in Kit Carson or something. So I think that that's a really compelling point. Um, And it gives us the opportunity then to observe the American Mm -hmm. spirit. through the eyes of an outsider who's also doing something good for the land, hmm.
1: and the the American spirit is more than just Kit Carson's spirit, too, right? There's someone is right. doing something very loud right outside this this room. We all so have I so many problems yeah, <clears throat> today. Problems.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Water filters, printers, whatever's going on there. I,
1: yeah, I don't even know what it is. So. I'm in the basement of the shop.
0: You're it's, the one in the dank basement right now. I
1: I literally am. And I don't know how it's possible that there is a noise that I can hear right now. Um, Someone must be working on the foundation of the building or something. Um,
2: You guys, I want to bring something up. I'm reluctant because again, it's been, this is my second read and my first read is so dim in my memory. But I find it really interesting that Father Latour, we see plenty of opportunities where he is alone. He is in a time of, reflection. He's in a time of prayer. But we're not often privy to what is going on inside of him. We Mm -hmm. know presumably what he's doing, but we don't get to listen, if that makes sense. Whereas, again, I'm going to compare this book to The Power and the Glory, which is about a priest who's in this wild, Place and he's attempting to do his duty. And so much of that book is interior to the priest. And I, I, I just find the juxtaposition really fascinating that um, Father Latour's mission is driving him forward. And it's as if his individuality I don't want to say it doesn't matter. Most certainly does matter, because he's an individual man who's like set about on this great task. But Catherine is not bringing forward all of the feels for Father Latour. What she's really highlighting is the actions that he's taking. Um, And I can fully imagine, as I'm sure that you guys can the moments of turmoil and the moments of like confusion that are facing father Latour in these really complex and thorny circumstances. Yet we're just thus far in the book. We've been given very little access to that. And I wonder what you guys make of that lack of access.
1: State the question again.
2: We are not given access to many of father Latour's inner thoughts. We get some, but not many, especially when compared to the whiskey priest in the power and the glory.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you about that.
2: So why are we, why do you think that we're not been being given much access to father Latour's inner, inner heart, inner thoughts?
1: So in chapter three of part three on page 102, there's a section where we do get into his inner thoughts. It's right before the legend of the, Fray Baltazar, and so it's the end of this, this section. It's the last thing we hear from him in part three. Um, So I'll read. I want to read a couple paragraphs here. In the gray dust of the enclosed garden, two thin, half dead peach trees still struggled with the drought. The kind of unlikely tree that grows up from an old root and never bears. By the wall, yellow suckers put out from an old vine stump, very thick and hard which must once have borne its ripe clusters built upon the northeast corner of the cloister. The Bishop found a loggia loggia, roofed, but with open sides looking down on the white Pueblo and the tawny rock and over the wide plain below there, he decided he would spend the night from this loggia. He watched the sun go down, watched the desert become dark. The shadows creep upward abroad in the plain, abroad in the plain, the scattered mesa tops red with the afterglow one by one lost their light like candles going out he was on a naked rock in the desert in the stone age a prey to homesickness for his own kind his own epo- epoch for a european man and his glorious history of desire and dreams through all the centuries that his own part of the world had been changing like the sky at daybreak this people had been fixed increasing neither in numbers nor desires rock turtles on their rock something reptilian he felt there something that had endured by immobility, a kind of life out of reach like the crustaceans in their armor. So I was thinking a lot about this passage for one, because it's beautiful. It's great Gatsby ish. It's straight out of Fitzgerald, which maybe Fitzgerald comes straight out of cather. But what I was wondering is, do you read this section as being in his head Mm -hmm. and being his mind at work, or do you read this truly as a third person omniscient narrator telling us what to think um, because if if we read it as being in his head, there are more opportunities to be in his head than it seems like on the surface um, because I do I think I read it as being in his being in our character's head being I- him an explanation of what he's thinking, experiencing feeling. Um, Processing. So how do you how do you approach that? I mean, do you think this is the narrator, Tim? You're kind of you're giving it you're giving a sign of waffling, like maybe not. I kinda no, am waffling. But not yes. Because I'm I feel waffling like, go ahead. Go ahead, David. Uh, okay. The book has the occasional moment like this that pop up where the book briefly, very briefly, gives us some sort of interpretation. Either the author is doing some interpretive work here. Or it's some kind of thoughtfulness inside the character's head. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens sometimes. So if it's the character, we're getting to know the character more than maybe it seems like on the surface, like I said. So, so you're, you're saying no. You don't think that's the character. You think
2: that's our omniscient narrator? I, I'm waffling because I really can see it both ways. But just I'm going to read the thing again, and then I'm going to kind of mark where I think. If there is interior, here's where it begins. Okay. In the gray dust of the enclosed garden, two thin half-dead peach trees still struggled with the drought, the kind of unlikely tree that grows up from an old root and never bears. By the wall, yellow suckers put out from an old vine stump, very thick and hard, which must once have borne its ripe clusters. So first paragraph, it's exterior. Next paragraph. Built on the northeast corner of the cloister, the bishop found a loggia roofed, found a logia, roofed, but with open sides, looking down on the white Pueblo and the tawny rock over a wide plain below. There he decided he would spend the night. From this logia, he watched the sun go down, watched the desert become dark, the shadows creep upward. Abroad, so we're still, it's still description of what's exterior to him. Abroad in the plain, the scattered mesa tops, red with the afterglow, one by one lost their lights, like candles going out. I think that is just a great, wonderful sentence. I'm just going to read the sentence again and look what the author does. Abroad in the plain, the scattered mesa tops, red with the afterglow, one by one lost their light, like candles going out. So we go from exterior, 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 to exterior, which reminds Father... Latour of something else candles going out. Right.
1: Yeah. I love he that. was on a
2: naked rock in the desert in the stone age. Wait, is he really in the stone age? No. It's like his, his mental workings have taken him into back into the stone age, mm-hmm. a prey for homesickness of his own kind, his own epoch for European man and his glorious history of desire and dreams through all the century that his own part of the world had been changing like the sky at daybreak, this people had been fixed, increasing neither in numbers nor desires, rock turtles on their rocks, something rectilian, he felt there, something that he endured in, by immobility, the kind of life out of reach, like a crustaceans in their armor. I just think that sentence was just so really so smart that, like, mm-hmm. without signaling, "Hey, I'm going to tell you what he's thinking now. She does that at the end Mm -hmm. of this sentence, very subtly bringing him into his own mind and his own sense of his own history. And so there's even in his um, interior thought, there's something so firmly tied to the exteriority of his life.
1: Yeah, so she does this thing where... She plays with the notion of third-person omniscient because it's the, the notion of omniscience is tricky. Because she'll say things like at the previous before what I read. Beside the church, besides the church proper, there was the cloister, large, thick-walled, which must have required an enormous labor of portage from the plain, mm. or even the part that you read at the end, there you read after I read it. By the wall, yellow suckers put out from an old vine stump, very thick and hard, which must once have borne its ripe clusters and if it's truly omniscient the narrator is going to say which once which once bore its ripe clusters or which required an enormous labor of portage from the plane what she's doing there is we've got a third person narrator who does know what's going on but it's also a narrator who is interpreting what they see so it's both the narrator who is outside of it and the character who is in the moment and that's where i think we get this sense the 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 um effect of a memory novel really comes out because she does things like that. Great point. So it, it 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 engages with us on the level of question, like where the character is asking questions about the things that he is seeing. And yet it's also engaging with us in the sense that we can trust what this person is telling us is true. So he's omniscient to the degree that we can trust him, but he's also an individual who has experienced things on a very human level. And she she transitions in and out of that so seamlessly that we can be... Swept away by it, a little bit confused by it in certain moments, but not to the degree where we're like disoriented. Yeah. Like, Heidi, go ahead. Tim and I would just talked for like five minutes about six lines.
0: <laughs> no, I loved it. I think that I before you asked the question, I thought of it and this and the, the latter option as the th- third person per, third person this is why i'm on podcast <laughs> this is th- why the third yes. person yeah that was third person omniscient um and i think you've just convinced me that there's more to it than that and that that's part of the brilliance of this particular novel and the voice of the novel um she does that with other characters too. Um, Hakinto specifically, when she tells us what it is that Hakinto the guide, Bishop Latour's guide, why it is that he trusts the bishop. Um, and she kind of gets behind his eyes for a second. Um, she does that That's in That's a the, great point. That, yeah. That so there's it's more than just our main character. There's other characters that she um that yeah. she kind of slips seamlessly behind into their motives and their feelings. Um, hmm. in, so it's in, sort in of person omniscient
1: that's slipping into the voice of particular characters.
0: Yeah. And, and and not a lot of authors can pull that off. I mean, and not a, a lot of authors can just make up a genre too. I mean, there's Tolstoy, like he can do whatever he wants. Um, <laughs> Tolstoy. There's, you know, there's, I, I think that Willa Cather is, I mean, she's well known amongst um literary kinds of people, but I still think she's underrated in the larger vision of the American canon. Um, Not enough people read her. She's actually really easy to read and incredibly brilliant storyteller. Um, But what you're describing is pretty masterful. And I didn't really even see it.
2: There's kind of a blurring in the passage that we read of what is exterior to our protagonist and what is interior to our protagonist. And I, and I, it seems very deliberate. And I also wonder, Heidi, if this has something to do with why we find the book so comforting. Part of the reason that I think we enjoyed the whiskey priest so much in the power and the glory is because his anxieties in some way are our anxieties. We can identify with him, right? Raskolnikov, Mm -hmm. his anxieties are our anxieties. There's something like that Dostoevsky and that Graham Greene can name these deep interior kind of like fountains of our own shortcomings and our own hopes. That's what I think drives those narratives. But I think there's something about this book that... There's kind of a a merging of what is happening inside Father Latour and what is outside of Father Latour that gives a stability to his conscience, which is exactly what this narrative needs. If it is doing what I think it's doing, that this is a story of um, a man who is bringing order and harmony into this part of the world. Right, mm-hmm. so, so if that's what his task is, then we should be able to see that, and we are seeing that in this kind of blending of what is inside of him with the kind of like firmness of the world and the objective world that's around him. Mm-hmm. That's well said.
1: That's one of the, the most interesting things about a third-person omniscient narrator is when you find ways to... Um, for that, for that narrator to present subjective experience, you know, sometimes you'll get you get like, you'll jump around from character to character in a third-person narrator. But the really great writers managed to find a way to make it feel subjective, even though in reality, what you're getting is sort of a narrator who knows what's going on. So, how do you, when you when the, when the narrator doesn't have doubts about what's happening? How do you? create subjective experience. And there's a real subtlety in that. That takes a lot of, well, I don't know, just a lot of skill. Mm -hmm. Um, And it allows you, I think, to, um, to do interpret, to, I was going to say to do interpretive work, but I don't want to say to, to offer an interpretation of the story, but to create characters who are trying to interpret the world around them. So what you, what we can count on is that what the character is seeing is real. Like we can count on the the narrator being reliable in that sense. But we can also then understand that the subjective experience of specific characters within those experiences can be sort of complicated, can be sort of like they can be a little bit disoriented themselves even as we can trust what's happening. Hmm. And I feel like that's something like what's happening here. Does that, does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: Well, we should probably begin wrapping this up. We've been going for an hour and 15 minutes or so. Do you guys want to have any final thoughts or anything? Anything you want to... Do you feel like... Why did we not talk about this? We, we touched on priests being thrown over cliffs. Um, we touched on, you know, the... Uh, the what's his name? Scales. Yeah. yeah. The villainous bad guy. Yeah. Um, the, the, we, I guess there's, there's lots of food we didn't, we didn't talk about. Lots of feasting, but I think we're going to have more chances. Yeah, I think we are. Feasting and food. Tim, you got any final thoughts?
2: I'm glad that we had the conversation about what is thematically tying these things together because I think that could become an obstacle for a reader who uh, doesn't know what's going on. I mean, like, might know what's going on uh, from episode to episode, but doesn't know why all these books are assembled, all these stories are assembled into a single book. So I'm glad we kind of reasoned a little bit. I'm not sure that we like, arrived at a really firm conclusion. I feel like I've put forward, you know, the institution of tradition. and have order. A Yeah, I have a thesis. And hopefully that's serviceable throughout the remainder of the book. But I at least I'm really glad that we talked about that because I think that could be an obstacle for people who just see this as just like, uh, a, a mis- miscellany of episodes. Heidi, hmm.
1: do you have any thoughts, any further thoughts on that before we go?
0: Um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think that the episodic nature is the strength of the novel, not at all mm-hmm. a weakness, but it it does take some catch up, I think, on the part of the the reader to, a little bit of grace at the beginning to get used to that. Um I really like the story of Father Viant getting the mules.
2: Yeah. I think mm.
0: that's great. Um there's I, I think in the in the episodes, as and we touched on this oh, later. We gotta bit talk about Father
1: Viant later. I
0: I know. I I love him. He's he's such a great um contrast, just as heroic as Latour, just as dedicated, just as devout, just as determined. Um he provides a little bit of lightheartedness, I think, along the way, and but he also has his, the, a, a great depth to him. But he makes he makes Bishop Latour a little bit less, um, excuse me, a little more approachable. I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because Latour is so idealized, and um, uh, so and you know, so cultured and he's not very approachable and Viant really is. And so I think in some ways he's a bit of like a, a John the Baptist kind of. Um, he's a man figure. of the earth. Yeah. Um, and the, the way he gets those mules, I just think is awesome. I like, I love it. How he just, he knows exactly how to. Um, be really honoring and respectful uh, to. To this wealthy mexican landowner while also still like manipulating him a little bit and calling upon his piety and making him feel like a great man of god for doing it and it's just great um that the priests are not above you know asking to be supported um and i just think it's great so i love that part and Viant's a great character And I absolutely love all of the scenes with Hakinto and and as the guide, as Bishop Latour's guide, there's a few more um, in the novel and they're like, they're just, I just love them for some reason. I love this like meandering priest in the desert with, with a guide to show him where to, um, how to like navigate the landscape. I think it's just beautiful. So,
2: Tim, anything else? No, David, do you have a closing thought?
1: Uh, Well, a minute ago, I mean, I said we need to talk about Mm Viart because I need to keep reading. But my my um, my reading of him, my experience with him was less charitable than yours. I didn't care for him so much. Oh, really? Reading and figure out: a Did I confuse him with somebody else? (laughs) Or because all the names after a while do get a little bit, you know?
0: Well, there's so many characters, Um, and they come in and out.
1: Yeah. Um, but I need to keep reading. Um, there was something, there's something off-putting about him. So I've got to keep reading with that in mind. That's kind of like what I'm gonna be looking for is figure out. Can
0: you tell us like where that comes from? Do you have, like, do you know where that comes from?
1: Probably my, um, German heritage. (laughs) (laughs) Just generally skeptical of French people. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Um, no, not off the top of my head. I don't remember the... Um,
2: is he too pragmatic, David? Is he too... He's far from an idealist.
1: Mm, no, I don't think that was it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. This is not great, great uh, podcasting for me to... Think
2: about it. Maybe you could... Maybe at the top of our next episode, we can talk about... It can, it can just be a bannered David's grievance against Father Vaillant so
1: that just escalated really right I don't so for me yeah.
2: p- part, part of it is I'm
1: sitting on a broken chair here and i um, it's very tenuous As is that Father
2: Vian's like um, error no David that's yours
1: right I know well I didn't have a lot of options okay Um, you, you talked about the mules scene that and he who, they're both there for that one right or is...
0: no Bishop Latour is not there right it's just Father Violence. right okay mm-hmm.
1: so I took. I found him to be less appealing during that scene, for for, for example, than Mm -hmm. you seem to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've got to think about why that is.
0: He's real bossy. I mean, he does come in and he's like, "I'm going to do the marriages now. Go get the people." He tells him how to. Does it's because he tells him how to cook? I know that's what it is. Oh, there it is. is.
2: There (laughs) it is, David. He comes
0: in and prepares his own dinner because he doesn't want stewed mutton again.
2: No. You're like, leave me alone, <laughs> you French imperialist! Yeah, <laughs> I'm making maybe. bratwurst. I'm a German. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Although I'd much rather cook French food than German food. Um, right. okay. I can say that as a German, right?
2: Um, Heidi and I can both only silently agree. If we did, no, if, if we are, I'm ag- <laughs>
0: Yes, totally, tots agree. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Although I do like a good like sauerkraut on a bratwurst no doubt yeah i
2: love it well yeah spicy
1: mustard because
0: i'm i'm i have a soul
1: right (laughs) as i as i like to say i have a soul
0: yeah
1: um okay i'm gonna think about this for next time okay um (laughs) i gotta think about like i don't think that i took his response to like oh no I can't. I can't ride these. Like I don't think I, the way he was responding to the idea of being offered the mules and all that kind of stuff. I didn't read that as, as being as being per, portrayed as virtuous in the way that you were. Mm. So I need to go back and read that. I need to think about it. I need to Probably examine. Yeah, yeah, I need to examine yeah. my own soul. <laughs> all the things one <laughs> has Maybe to have do. Yeah, right. exactly. Yes. All the things that one has to do while while reading, while right? Yeah. Reading
0: <laughs> any good novel, exactly. Um,
1: so with that, that will be my thing that I'm looking looking towards is how virtuous are we supposed to see these characters as? And I think that's actually worth thinking about even for Latour as well. Agreed. Um, is he supposed to be this, how pure is he? Um, is is a, probably a good question to ask most most key characters in any book how pure are their motives? It's probably one of those great questions to just ask in general. We Whether should just
0: ask people that. Right. Just over dinner. Right. Please have some bratwurst. How pure of soul are you? <laughs>
2: how pure are your motives <laughs> On a scale right now? of one to 10. <laughs> Can you chart it on yeah. an X, Y axis? Keep right. Right.
1: Yeah. right. I'd like to think about what the, what are the two axes <laughs> here on X, Y axis for, for on the, on the purity scale. <laughs>
0: Right. I'll say, how does your self-revelation match with my <laughs>
1: yes.
0: judgment of you that I've already exactly.
1: made? I'm oh, the Y-axis. My judgment of you is the Y-axis. Your judgment of yourself <laughs> is the X-axis. Let's see which quadrant we collectively mm-hmm. end up in. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we should probably Now that nobody
0: our... wants to be friends with us anymore. Know, right. Right. Nobody right.
1: wants to be friends with us. We have no listeners of this podcast anymore. Uh, we're <laughs> never going to have dinner with anybody but the three of us. Um, and, you know... <laughs> Like, my children have to have dinner with me, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, same with me. Right.
0: My children eat every night. Every night. They're like, Where's the food? I'm like, Where's the
1: food? We did this. We just did this like four hours ago. We literally made
0: you food yesterday. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Now I'm just thinking about how I have to feed my children in like two hours. (laughs) No, like less than two hours. It's five o'clock. I was going
0: to say, Yeah.
1: All right, Tim.
2: All right, David.
1: You have to feed people
2: too. I do. You do. Mm-hmm.
1: They probably want to eat too. They're going to be upset if you don't feed them.
2: I want
0: to ask, what are you guys making for dinner tonight? Do you know
1: already? I haven't no, I haven't thought about it at all. Okay. So so that's part of the problem here. That's why I'm that's why I'm annoyed that you brought it up. Yeah. Well, with that, for Heidi On White, and for, Tim, for Heidi White and for Tim Macintosh, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Happy reading.